Good morning, my brothers and sisters, at the nine o'clock hour here at Lake Avenue Church. I think we should take some time to hear from our Father. I pray that this song that the choir has sung will be true, that the Father may, our God, our Father, may see what happens at Lake Avenue Church and his heart will rejoice. Well, let's hear what he has to say. It's found in Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. It's one of the most striking, some might even say shocking, episodes in all of the New Testament. Luke chapter 4. Jesus has just gone through temptation from the devil himself, comes out triumphant, goes into his hometown, and this is what happens. Luke chapter 4. Let's stand as we hear the word of our Father. Beginning with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The message that I bring to you has been many, many years in the making. So it's very dear to my heart. It, it began when I left a little town in West Virginia to go to Chicago to go to college. The very first person that I met was my RA, resident assistant, the, the upperclassman sort of watched out in the dorm for those who were underclassmen. His name is Gordon Schultz. He immediately became a friend, still is. Uh, And he was also perhaps the first mentor that I could remember. Uh, As friends, on Saturdays, we would walk around the streets of Chicago and we would just talk about life. I never will forget one particular Saturday morning as we were walking along the Oak Street Beach in Chicago when uh, Gordon said to me, Greg... I'm trying to learn to view every person uh, who comes across my path as being someone God has sent there. He was trying to apply his theology classes (laughs) to his life. And in theology classes, he'd been learning that God is imminent. Do you know that word? Imminent. Uh, Not just out there, but present here with us. God is there, but he is here. And also that God is sovereign. That there is nothing that happens in this world that is outside of his knowledge and outside of his working. 
He said, if that's true, if that's true about God, and that's what the Bible reveals about God, then that means that there are no coincidental encounters. And I'm trying to ask, how then would God have me to treat those people he has sent my way? We know, and last week, those of you who were not here, last week, we, we learned that we are to be his ambassadors in this world. Bringing the message and the ministry that there's hope, good news, reconciliation uh, available for people with, with God and with one another. We are the ones who bring that message. And he thought, how then do I represent the Lord Jesus Christ to those people that God sends my way? Well, I don't know if Gordon still wonders about these things, but it shows you you shouldn't make me think about them because here I am years and years and years later still thinking about that question. I don't have a total answer, but I'll tell you what I did. After, after that walk that we had, I went back to my room and I began a Bible study in the Gospels. And I, and I thought, well, how did Jesus see people? How did Jesus treat people? And I started with the Gospel of Luke and came to this text that we have just read. This message in which Jesus goes into his little hometown, Nazareth, very small town, and probably into a very small synagogue. And as he goes there, he is given the opportunity to read the scriptural scroll. And unrolling it, he comes to this passage in Isaiah, in which he reads that the Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because there has been an anointing from God's Spirit. And the anointing is to, to bring, to proclaim, to preach good news. In a world where there's a whole lot of bad news. And, and where people's lives are not what they should be. He was going to come and bring a beautiful message that life can be different. A beautiful message to those who are poor. There's good news for you. To those who are in prison. Even if they've gotten themselves there by their own mistakes or sins, there is good news. There is hope to those who are oppressed by the systems of this world and have only experienced injustice, that there is a hope of a different kind of government and a different kind of a world, that the year of the Lord's favor is at hand. So I, I read that and I thought, well, what, what does that actually look like? This good news in the lives of people. Now go over here. To the Fuller Seminary Library. Pull out commentaries on the Gospel of Luke and see what they have to say. And some of them will say that this good news is only eschatological. Do you, do you know that word? That this is a message only for the end days. That someday when God finishes his work, and the Messiah, when Jesus comes back again, then there will be good news for the poor and for the imprisoned and so forth. And surely that's true. And I just want you to know what we have to look forward to. For those who are going to be with God in heaven, who have trusted Christ, there is going to be a world in which there will be no prisons. Though there are going to be a lot of people there who have been in prison. No need of them anymore. For people are going to be complete and remade. There are going to be no poor. The streets are going to be made of gold. <laughs> and there's going to be plenty of, of resource for all people. There are going to be no hospitals so that we won't need to have healing for the blind. Because all people will be whole. We will live life as it was meant to be lived. So some people say that this promise of Jesus 
is only and it's all for the future. But I don't think so. Because Jesus would say that now the kingdom of God, when the king of kings is here, the kingdom is among you. And even now that those of us have the Holy Spirit, we have the opportunity to bring good news to people whose lives are not what they should be even now and tell them it can begin Though it may not be, it will not be complete until God finishes his work. So in thinking about that, I began to ask, what, what does that good news look like in the lives of people? I started with Jesus. Reading the Gospel of Luke, I began looking at what are called quest stories. I think I've put a little description of them up here. Quest stories. Because in the Gospel of Luke, you have all of these people who come across the path of Jesus... They're not coincidental. And they have deep inner needs. They have quests. They hope that something will happen. Someone will come who will make their lives different. A quest story, as I wrote it out, is people in the Gospel of Luke approach Jesus in quest of something very basic to human well-being. Usually humble people. Often people who feel on the outside of the most powerful and well-to-do people. They're concerned. The thing that permeates this encounter is whether that quest is going to be successful or not. There, there are going to be obstacles or challenges. Often they will be people who've been rejected before. And they would expect maybe this new rabbi named Jesus, he'll probably treat them the way everybody else has, holding them at arm's length. There, there's an expectation that things could go wrong. So there's always this wonderful tension that is there. What will Jesus do? When somebody comes across his path, a humble person who knows and longs for life to be different, how will Jesus see them? How will Jesus treat them? Well, this morning we're going to whip through it. We're going to see snapshots one after another, one after another, to see what Jesus does. And then we're going to stop and ask the question, how do we who represent Jesus treat those that he brings across our paths? Seeing that we are not Jesus and don't have the power often to speak a word and that a person will be healed. How might we represent the compassion and grace of Jesus in a world where people know their lives are not all that they should be? Ready to look at them? We're going to look at eight quests. Quest number one. I've called it going through the roof. It's in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. I want you to see the setting of this quest on one particular day. One day, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee, not only from there, from Judea, from Jerusalem, they were sitting there. All right. These were the spiritually, religiously elite. These are ones a whole lot like your pastor. Seminary grad, PhDs in theology, listening to this new rabbi with those skeptical looks on their faces. What is he going to say this time? Let him show us what he can do. And at this point, there was one particular man who had a deep need. You know the story, those of you who've been to church, those of you who haven't, be sure to read through verses 17 to 26. It's a man from another gospel, almost certainly a young man, who was a paralytic. People thought the reason why he has this physical problem is that either he or his parents have sinned. So it's all his own fault. 
But as you read the story, you'll begin to see that he really has a twofold problem. First of all, he has a physical problem. And as those who have disabilities know, so often you feel as if you were ignored. People hold you at arm's length. You don't always feel whole in the eyes of most people. And there you have all these spiritually, educationally, financially powerful people. Surely Jesus won't notice a person like this. So he was physically infirm, but also it's clear from what develops a little bit later, he had a spiritual problem. He did have sins that needed to be forgiven. And there were twofold obstacle. Number one, this big crowd of people around this house where Jesus was teaching so that a man who was paralyzed couldn't get in. But the bigger one really was these crowds of people didn't think that this man was worth very much and that surely a rabbi who's going to try to make a good impression upon the Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from everywhere would notice them and not him. Well, you know this story, don't you? It's a good thing he had some good friends. So when we have some trouble, may God send us some of them. May some of us be those kind of friends when we see some people who are hurting and and whose lives are not all that they should be. And you know what they did? They brought him through the roof, (laughs) right down through the roof so that uh, they could bring him to Jesus. First obstacle in the quest that is overcome. But the other one was probably the bigger obstacle. Would Jesus care about a man that most people thought was not worth all that much. Well, the question was, could he forgive when, he acknowledged, when Jesus acknowledged that he has sinned? So look at verse 23. Jesus turns to all these people and says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? <laughs> Implying that he can say both. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. In the middle of the sentence, he breaks and turns to the paralyzed man. I tell you. Get up, take your mat and go home and look at the outcome of the quest. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on and went home, praising God. It was a divine appointment, don't you think? This was good news, touching the life of a man who needed some good news. Praise be to God. That's quest number one. Quest number two. I've I've called it an anxious leader, a sick servant. Chapter 7, verse 2. Here here we have in verse 2 the setting. A centurion. There's the important word. There in Capernaum in Galilee, Jesus' home area, a centurion's servant was there whom his master valued highly was sick and, and especially was about to die. So death is in the situation. So as you look at this, you see at the quest, this, this centurion longs to have perhaps this new, this new rabbi to do something about a sick servant that he cares about. But what is the obstacle to the quest being fulfilled? Well, number one, that he's a Roman centurion. And if you know anything about the history of that time, the Roman military had come into Jesus' home area, to his country, and they were holding the people under oppression. Uh, the Jewish people just wanted them out of there. So this man not only was a non-Jew, a Gentile, but he was a Roman military leader. A centurion used to have at least 100 military people directly under his command. So so the problem is you would never expect that Jesus would have anything to do. First with a Gentile. And secondly, especially 
with a Roman military leader. And yet he was a good man. And he seemed to understand what I will call a cultural distance. He seemed to understand that that Jesus might be viewed as defiled if he even spent any time with him. So what does he do? He sends others to Jesus. And he does it twice. He sends one group to say, this man has treated us well. And when Jesus, instead of doing something from afar, begins going to his home, there's a second delegation that the centurion sends. And and it's just so beautiful what he sends them to say. He says, listen, I'm in a position where I have people who are under my authority. I tell them go and they go. I tell them to stay and they stay. And somehow the centurion knew that if Jesus would simply speak, that he had authority over everything, speak the word. And I believe that we will see a work of God. So you see, since the quest, what could Jesus do about death? What would Jesus do to deal with a Roman military oppressor? Well, let us see the shocking outcome. Verse 9 of chapter 7. When Jesus heard what this centurion had sent, the message that he had sent, he was amazed. And turning to this crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even here in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and they found the servant well. I tell you, it was a divine appointment. It was a divine encounter. It was gospel. Good news. Life beginning to be what God had made it to be. Quest number two. Which brings us, of course, to quest number three, which I have entitled, Why is he talking to her? Why is he talking to her? And that is uh, Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. It runs through verse uh, 50. Look at the way it's set in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees, oh no, there we have it again, invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's own house and he was reclined at the table, which is the way that they would eat. Now, you've got to put yourself into this setting. Um, Those who are close to Jesus, you can almost imagine us being there, uh, wanting Jesus to make a good impression would have known that, you know, the last time we were with these Pharisees and these leaders, it didn't go all that well. We hope it'll go better this time. Can't you imagine thinking that? We hope there will be no scenes this time. We want them to accept him. And of course, if they accept him, they'll accept us. And then we'll get a whole lot better positions in the community. When, oh, no. You know this story, don't you? Breaking into the house, there is a woman that everyone knows to be a sinner. Uh, The language used in the Gospel of Luke, almost certainly a prostitute. And when she comes in, she makes such a fuss. She weeps and she wails and she she weeps and and bathes the feet of Jesus with her tears. She kisses his feet. She, She anoints his feet with perfume. Oh, this is just what we didn't want to have happen. Can't you imagine? Wouldn't you think that? This is going to set our cause back farther than anyone could ever imagine. And Simon, the Pharisee who owned the home, said, now we know. This man is not a man of God. This is not a prophet. Or he would know who's touching him. 
he would know that she would defile him by him having anything to do with her. And some of these powerful words of scripture. Jesus said, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he told him a story. Verse 41. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other just 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So they were both debtors with no hope. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Grudgingly, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. At last, you've made a right judgment. Now I have a message for you, Simon. I walked into your house and you didn't even welcome me. You didn't bathe my feet. You didn't show me any kind of honor. And yet she has come and showed me love, respect, and honor. Let me tell you a lesson. The one who loves much is the one who has forgiven much. Now, brothers and sisters at Lake Avenue, do you think this woman needed forgiveness more than Simon did? The answer is no, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) It's just he wouldn't acknowledge it. Jesus came for those who will acknowledge that they are sinners. As he would say so often, I did not come. The physician did not come for those who already try to pretend they're well. It's my reinterpretation. Because all of us need healing from our Lord. He has come for the sick. And then the declaration at the end of this. Verses 48 to 50. Then Jesus said to her, can you imagine it? Your sins are forgiven. The guest said, who is this who even forgives sins? But Jesus said to the woman, it's your faith that has saved you. Go in. And I don't know what your version has. Shalom. Peace. It really is a word that means begin at last to live life as God created it to be lived. Divine encounter, right? Good news. Hope. Hope. Even for a prostitute. That is quest number three, which brings us, of course, to quest number four. And I've called this one one out of ten. One out of ten. It uh, takes us all the way over into Luke chapter 17. Um, There's a shift in the Gospel of Luke at the end of chapter 9. Jesus, who'd been up in Galilee, the northern part, his own home area, turns his face toward Jerusalem. And from chapter 9, verse 51 on, he is heading toward Jerusalem where he says, I'm going to die. Now he's on the way. He's on the way in chapter 17. And he's on this area between Galilee and Samaria. That's where these people live, these in ethnicity that the Jewish people would have nothing to do with. They, they would usually try to avoid it. And at a distance, so you have the setting. Setting is between Samaria and Galilee. And in verses 12 and on, we read about ten men. You may know about them. Verse 12. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. But they stood at a distance as they had to. Do you feel it? Outside of community. Not, not really belonging. But, but they had a quest. And crying out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, please have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Does this morning feel like, for those of you who are longer term, does it feel like going to Sunday school? Do you remember all these stories? Hopefully we'll see them in a new light. In the light of what he's done so far, look at what happens in 15. Only one of them 
when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet. He thanked him. And then it's as if there is a highlighter put on the way it's written. And he was a Samaritan. I can just imagine some of the people reading the Gospel of Luke saying, why did he have to make a big point out of that? And Jesus said, hey, weren't ten cleansed? Where are those other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except, and then to under, with a more of a highlighter, this foreigner, these, this one who was usually outside of the, of the family of Abraham. So this big quest for life to be different. And the outcome really is given in verse 19. Then Jesus said to this man, Rise, go. Your faith has made you. My version says well. The base word is a Greek word, sozo, saved. Uh, as I've often thought on this particular encounter, one day ten men were healed and one man was saved. Ten men were healed and one man was made whole. Tell you it was a divine appointment. It's what happens when the good news of Jesus begins touching a life. Quest number four, which of course brings us to quest number six. I've called him a boisterous blind beggar. So over in Luke chapter 18, now Jesus is getting close to, the, to Jerusalem where he's going to die. He's just outside of Jericho. There's a man there in verse 35 who's identified in three ways. As he approached Jericho, verse 35, a blind man was sitting by the roadside. He was begging. And when he heard the crowd that was going by, he cried out to Jesus. And if you read the rest, he just keeps crying out, keeps crying out. He's blind, begging, and boisterous. So you have to have a little alliteration here. He irritated people. The more he cried out, the people around him said, rebuked him, the scriptures tell us, and told him to be quiet. With this being implied, this one, this rabbi, surely would have nothing to do with you. He has important people around him. He would have nothing to do with you. But by now, if you'd read the whole story as we've been going through these quests, we know that Jesus overturns expectations. What do you think Jesus might actually do? Verse 40, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. Aha, I can almost imagine them thinking he's going to rebuke him now. Say, be quiet. You're getting on my nerves. But verse 41, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The quest, Lord, I want to see. Remember Luke 4? And Jesus said to him, the outcome of the quest, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight, followed Jesus. And that voice that had been used to just irritate people now is going to be turned into a voice of praise. We might even get him in the choir, Dwayne. What do you think? Praising the Lord so that the Father would hear him, the Father would dance. I'll tell you, and when others saw it, they also praised God. It's a divine appointment. It's an encounter with the good news of Jesus. Quest number six, which brings me to quest number seven. I've called him a height-challenged rich man in a tree. 
Jesus is going into Jericho now. He's about a day away from Jerusalem. I love verse 1. Just look. I love the way these stories are told in the Bible. Jesus entered Jericho and he was just passing through. It gives you this idea that nothing's going to happen there. And yet every person is a person that, that God sends. And there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he's described also in three ways. He was a chief tax collector. He was wealthy. Now, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but, but he was short. So his occupation, tax collector, rich, and short. Or, to be more politically correct, he was occupationally misguided, economically oppressive, and height-challenged. <laughs> Much more if we can receive that a little better. Big point is, he was a tax collector. And even though he was rich... The money that he had was viewed by everyone around him as being raised through injustice. Tax collectors, every church I've been in has had an IRS agent. I wonder if I have one here. They're not the same. They're not the same. Uh, Tax collectors had to collect per capita so much to give to the Roman government to keep his own people under yoke. And anything he could raise above that, he could keep for himself. Oh, it led to extortion. This is a story that the people in Chicago can relate to so well. Just, just to let you No, I'm sure not here in Pasadena. And uh, Zacchaeus was good at it. You know why we know? He had risen to the level of becoming a chief tax collector in that dishonest occupation. So wealthy, settled in his ways, but there was a longing in his heart. There was a quest. I mean, something sent him up that tree that day. Um, I've tried to imagine what it was. He, uh, surely he didn't want to be in the public because people would give him a hard time. How could we ever imagine that at Lake Avenue in the morning? Maybe you could imagine. Could you envision the governor of the state of California making a decision that the people at a church would probably not like? And yet he'd heard that great things were happening in the life of Lake Avenue Church. So on a particular Sunday morning, he gets there early and tries to hide. Now, it would be harder for our governor to hide than it was for Zacchaeus. I know. I don't know where we would find him here somewhere. But hoping that no one would notice him and criticize him. That's what you have to see as Zacchaeus goes up that tree in Jericho that day. And read through the story of those first ten verses. Jesus and the crowd get closer and closer to the tree. Zacchaeus up there trying to hide, hoping that no one will notice him. Kind of like a person who sits in the back row of a church. Hopefully nobody will even notice, you know, notice that we are here. Jesus gets closer and closer and closer and stops right at the tree. I can almost imagine Zacchaeus saying, Psst, Jesus, just pass on by. Pass on. I, I've just come to see you today. But it's Jesus who says to him, no, Zacchaeus, it is not you who have come to see me. It is I who have come to meet you. Isn't that the way it is? Haven't you experienced that? You come in, even to a church, you try to remain anonymous, you hope certain things will be hidden, and it's as if the message is directed specifically to you. God breaks in. That's the way he is. And that's what happened. Zacchaeus comes down and he responds immediately and with great joy. And he invites Jesus over to his house, which was also a problem that Jesus would go to a tax collector's house. <laughs> and when Jesus asked him to repay all that he had stolen, he, he did it and four times as much. And as a businessman friend of mine said to me, when you see that God has touched a man's pocketbook, you know he's changed his heart. 
Don't you think so? This quest, there was something about this wealthy man that longed for life to be different. It's what so many people who hit retirement years and know that there has to be more to live for than what I have found so far. Don't you think Zacchaeus knew that there was another tax collector in Jesus' circle? Matthew was there. And Jesus had changed him and welcomed him. So there was hope for Zacchaeus. And the outcome is found in this powerful word. Verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. This man too is a child of Abraham. He's in the family. I can imagine some of the the, the more elite people saying, If he's in the family, I don't think I want to be in. And then the message of the gospel that transcends the ages and comes to us. This is why I have come. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Hallelujah. Which brings us to quest number eight. I called him a guilty man on a tree. A guilty man on a tree. Chapter 23. You know the story. Jesus on the cross, surrounded by two criminals. You see that in verse 32. And then we come to the quest in verse 43, in verse 39. One of the criminals on the cross beside him hurled insults at Jesus. Ah, if you're really the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? We're under the same sentence as he is, but we're here justly. This man has done nothing. And then the longing... Jesus, remember me, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now you have to see this man had the least to offer. Using our human values and human eyes, he had nothing to add to the strategic plan. He could bring nothing to accomplish whatever mission because he was a man justly on a cross, probably a murderer. And Jesus says, not only will I remember you, but look at this promise of good news. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. It still makes me weep to think about it. It means there is hope for all who will respond to this man. All right. I wrote something down I want to read you. After I looked at all those quests, I don't know what you think. We've just gone through this with all these snapshots. I want to tell you what I wrote. What a motley bunch. A lame sinner. A prostitute. A murderer. A leprous outcast. Samaritan. A tax collector. A sinner. A blind beggar. Can I relate to any of them? I I just look at this group. Is there a single person I would vote for for the ministry council? Where is there a single person in all this list that that looks like me? You know, kind of been brought up in the right way and kind of acts in the right way. Isn't there anybody? Quest number five. I've called him... The one we all want to be. It's in Luke chapter 18. 
a certain ruler, verse 18, asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? To live as God meant for me to live. Jesus probes him. What do you mean by good? Do you know who I am? God alone is good. Do you, do you see more than I think you're seeing? Have you kept all the commandments? Yes, I've kept these since I was a boy. And the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that Jesus looked at him with compassion. And Jesus said, there's just one thing that keeps you way down. Go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me and live. Brothers and sisters, of all the people we have looked at, he alone is the one who did not have his quest fulfilled. He alone. Peter and the disciples just couldn't understand it. Read it here. Read it also in Luke chapter 10. This man represented what they wanted to become. How, how could he be turned away? If he, can't, if he can't be a part of this, who can? And Jesus' powerful words. It's hard for people like this who are successful, whose lives then often become so self-directed, to enter the kingdom of God, to surrender to the lordship of God. Is there any hope for people like us? Jesus says, yes, it's, it's impossible for people, but it's not impossible for God. Which makes me think, brothers and sisters, there's hope for your pastor. If I too will be one of those who simply humbly brings my sins and my life to him in, in desperate need and recognizes that only the sinner who brings those sins, finds grace and forgiveness and a new life. I'll tell you, when you read through the Gospels, one of the things that always happens is you see that Jesus sees and values things differently from the way we do. He always overturns people's expectations. Do you see it? Uh, there's always forgiveness for those who repent. There's always mercy available for those who are humble and wonder, will he receive me? There is always hope for the, even those who sense there would be no hope for one such as I. But no blessing for the self-sufficient. No blessing for the proud. The proud will be humbled. The humble exalted. Now, I've thought about this re with regard to us. <laughs> and I just have three questions as our service comes near to an end. First question is this. Let's, let's ask ourselves, how do we come to Jesus? I mean, when you pray, when you come and worship, do, do you simply feel so grateful to be here? Do you still have this sense that I can't believe that God's welcomed me into his family and that, that I have the opportunity to join my voice with all the other people here in, in praise to him? This deeply grateful heart of one who has received mercy. Because I tell you, if we will have that humble spirit, we will find welcome and blessing from the Lord. But if we come thinking, I'm glad I'm not like that person, we will find ourselves in the same place as that rich ruler. I thought, how do, how do I explain this? Best illustration, I'm glad he's not here. He might not like me to use him as an illustration. But I remember a time with my son, Brandon. Uh, he was, a, 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 I think, a sophomore in high school, 
And he was going to be asking a girl out to one of those big school events, I don't know, homecoming or prom or something. And I remembered back as, as well as I could to when I was in high school. I had a brother who was two years older, and we used to encourage one another because both of us became very nervous when we tried to ask a girl out for a date. We would get there and encourage one another on go, go, and we'd start dialing the telephone, and we'd get embarrassed and slam it down. She'll never say yes, jump into bed, pull the covers over our head. Women, you may not have learned this. Some men have fragile egos. You probably have never figured that out. So... Anyway, I went, I went up to Brandon this time and I thought, okay, as a good father, I'll try to encourage him just a little bit. Brandon, I said, I know this is probably hard. I know you need a little bit of encouragement. He said, oh, dad, I've been instant messaging with all of her friends and they all tell me that she wants to go with me. (laughs) And the lesson is this, isn't it wonderful to ask? When you already know that the answer is yes. Isn't it wonderful to ask when you already know that the answer is yes. And my brothers and sisters, when we look at this cross where Jesus says it is for you and it is enough. He has already declared to all of us. Yes. And so if you look back over this past week and you see areas of your life that are still not what they should be and you wonder, once again, I'm going to bring this thing to him. He has already declared yes and that the blood of Christ is sufficient for your sins. Hallelujah. How do you come to Jesus? May we be characterized by being humble, grateful people. All right. Second question. Each one of these is worthy of a sermon, don't you think? Okay. What does a church look like? That follows this sort of man. <laughs> well, think about that. Are we going to number ourselves among this group of people in this, these quests and be thankful that we can be among them? Uh, the illustration I thought of here is I was in a church that I really love in the southeast. I've been there many times before. But when I went there, I could tell there was tension. They were fighting because the fight was over whether they should build a gym or not, a gymnasium. And the issue was not whether they had enough money. The issue was this. Some people were arguing, if we build a gymnasium, it will bring in the wrong kind of people. (laughs) Who are the wrong kind of people? I have to stand here and tell you that in the light of Scripture, I probably am in the greatest danger. Grown up in a Christian home, going to Christian schools, The ability to just feel myself kind of this religiously elite. I'm in the greatest danger, I tell you. I hope you'll welcome me. Uh, Randy Northrup was here last night. He said maybe our mission statement should be a place for the wrong kind of people. (laughs) Because those who come to the Lord find welcome. And the church that follows this kind of Messiah is a place for all who know they need help. And we'll find good news in Jesus. All right, final question. And this is as we go from this place. How will you encounter others in the name of Jesus? Well, we'll we'll be humble, won't we? Uh, After hearing uh, me talk about this, one of our students at Trinity wrote a song about it. And I, I was shocked when I first heard it. He said, only the sinner Jesus saves. Uh, Only one who acknowledges 
that he or she is a sinner, Jesus saves. Uh, Only those who will be numbered among murderers and prostitutes and crooked businessmen. I thought, what on earth did I preach? (laughs) But only those who will not come with an alibi, but say, Father, what you did is sufficient for them. Because it is also for me. What did Paul say at the end of his life? Here's a trustworthy saying. Worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And then he added, and I'm the worst of them. When we have that heart, we will be so thankful that we can be a part of his family. And as we encounter other people, we will say to them, boy, do I have some good news for you. And that good news is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because why did he come? Let us hear again his word. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. Good news to his glory. Amen. I'm going to ask Jeremy, his friend Josh Bales, sent us this song that he wrote after that chapel. And uh, ask Jeremy and our, some of our orchestra players if they will come and sing it and think about it as this message is sung. <laughs>